All right, at this time, I invite you to turn to Genesis 20, Genesis chapter 20, and I also invite our children to be dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, children, you can walk through the back doors into the Welcome Center area where a children's ministry worker will walk you to the children's ministry building. Uh, parents, if you're new, you can uh, go and check out the uh, children's uh, Bible study if you'd like to do that. Um, and uh, if you feel so compelled to come back into the service, you can do that as well. Uh, afterwards, and uh, we're looking forward to going through your word. Uh, from time to time, uh, pastors get together and they uh, talk about uh, things in ministry and what they're doing and, and all these different sort of things. And one of the things, uh, of course, that you will hear uh, if you're in that room with pastors is someone will ask, what are you preaching through? And uh, so I've had opportunities like that from time to time. And you know, it's very interesting when you hear uh, preachers say what they're preaching through. You know, I'm doing an eight-part series on this subject or this topic or that. I've never actually really done well in those conversations. Uh, when someone asks me, what are you preaching through? I say, Genesis. Uh, we're going through Genesis. Uh, you know, as opposed to some other topic or some uh, relevant issue. And, and foundational to that is I believe the Word of God is relevant to our needs and uh, we love the scripture at Colonial. We go chapter by chapter through a book, even the first book of your Bible, Genesis, uh, one of the oldest books uh, in scripture, because we believe it's relevant. And as we've been working through these ancient stories, I just can't help but draw parallels to our modern world today. And uh, so as we look at Genesis chapter 20, uh, we're going to look at this chapter together before we partake in the Lord's table. And... Um, in uh, the last few Sundays, we've concluded Moses' treatment of the Lot Chronicles, the story of Lot. And uh, it ended last week uh, with burning sulfur and fire. Remember the destruction of the city of Sodom. Lot narrowly escapes with his two daughters, and then they go to a cave outside the small city of Zoar later on. And, and then we read about the corruption of Lot with his daughters. As we come to Genesis 20, Moses intends to turn his attention to the next stage of the Abraham story. This stage includes Genesis 20 and 21. Both chapters are held together. And one of the ways you can see this in your Bible is just to know that there is a story about an exchange that Abraham makes with an ancient king by the name of Abimelech. Abimelech is the king of Gerar, the city nation Gerar. And you can read about Abimelech in two chapters of your Bible, in Genesis 20 and 21. At the beginning of these two chapters, there's a story about him. So look like, for instance, at Genesis 20, verse 2. It says, uh, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We've got Abimelech at the beginning of these two chapters, and then there's a, a period of silence about him. We don't even know that Abraham's ever going to interact with him again. But at the end of these chapters, at Genesis chapter 21 and verse 22, he returns to talk to Abimelech again. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham. Okay, so these two chapters are held together. Moses puts the story of Abimelech at the beginning and at the end so that we would see them as one literary unit. And inside of those two stories with Abimelech uh, is Moses' central concern. 
And Moses' central concern is about the two sons of Abraham. So in chapter 21, he talks about the birth of Isaac, the long-waited, promised heir of Abraham, the birth of Isaac, and then also the expulsion of his other son, Ishmael. Now, these two stories about Abimelech at the, at the edges of the chapter are there from Moses to indicate two threats to the promises that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. See, Moses is concerned to show how God worked to protect Abraham and to protect the promises that he gave to him. The first threat is the one we'll look at today, chapter 21, which is uh, the threat of an uh, illegitimate pregnancy. And then at the end, there'll be a threat of no sustaining water for Abraham and his people. If you remember, God had promised in Genesis chapter 12 that he would give Abram a land. He would make of him a great name and make of him a great people, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so in this chapter, we're going to see how God protects that. So this morning in Genesis chapter 20, we're going to pay close attention to this first exchange between Abraham and Abimelech. And in this chapter, Abraham returns to old sins. Okay, so it's the title of the sermon today, Returning to an Old Sin. Um, As we read through Genesis 20, we're going to see that Abraham lies to a foreign king about Sarah being his sister. And there are a lot of similarities in Genesis chapter 20. If you put your hand here and you also went over to Genesis 12 and you begin looking back and forth, you'd see a lot of similarities to a story we've already studied. Do you remember just after the call of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah leave and they go down to Egypt and they lie to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Remember this? They said that Sarah is his sister and it gets them into all kinds of different problems. Well, Genesis chapter 12 is very similar to Genesis chapter 20, the chapter we're going to look at today. It's so similar that as you're reading in the commentaries, especially among liberal scholars, you will find some people who say it's the same story. Okay, so the way liberals look at this is they will say, uh, Moses changes a few names here and there. He might change a few locations, but he tells the same story. That's how they make sense out of the fact that he's lying to a foreign ruler about Sarah in two texts. Unfortunately, I think what liberal scholars fail to take into consideration is an assumption that experience tells us is true. Their view depends largely on the assumption that a person will not make the same error twice. Right? And you know from your own life story that that is not the case. It seems that liberal scholars have forgotten to examine their own hearts. Haven't you ever committed the same sin twice? Of course you have. Of course we have. The simplest explanation of this text and why it's here is that Abraham and Sarah returned to old sins. It seems to me that one of their besetting sins all throughout the Abraham narrative is deceit. 
when they get into a challenging, difficult moment, their impulse is to lie. That was true with Pharaoh when Abraham thought he was going to die, so they lie. It was true just a few chapters before this. You remember there were three guests who came near Abraham's tent and had a meal with him? And one of those guests say, you know, about this time next year, Sarah is going to have a child. And you remember who's in the tent listening and who laughs internally? That one messenger who was a representative of the Lord himself, he asked, why did Sarah laugh? And what was her response? I didn't laugh. It's a besetting sin. It's something they resort to time and time and time again, lying. Now, in this text, I think it would be good for us to ask a question as we go through Genesis 20. And the question I want to ask is, why did they lie? Why did they lie? In this text, we're going to learn that Abram lies because he's afraid. He thinks the Philistines will kill him to get to Sarah, his wife. But I want to suggest that's not the fundamental problem. That's not the most foundational reason why he lied. And what I want you to do is go through the story with me and try to answer that question. What is more fundamental for Abraham as to why he lied? More fundamental than he's just simply afraid. So let's dig into this text. The way uh, I organize the text, and if you have a handout, you can fill in some of these things. Just four points, and it'll go pretty quickly. This text starts with an introduction in verses 1 and 2, so look there in your Bible. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Okay, so from Abraham's vantage point in Mamre, remember he was overlooking the destruction of Sodom, from there he leaves, and he moves along to the south to a city called Gerar. This is a Philistine city near the southern edge of Canaan. Now the text actually doesn't tell us why Abraham leaves. It may be that All of the destruction of Sodom with all of the fire and salting of the land meant that uh, there was not as much water as there was before or not the pasture lands in his area. Maybe there's some dispute about that. We don't know. Regardless, this move puts him in enemy territory. He's in a city populated by the Philistine people. Now, once he's in this city, Abraham repeats the same lie that got him in trouble 25 years before. In Genesis 12, he says, she is my sister. That leads Abimelech, the Philistine king, to take Sarah, meaning he took her as his wife. Now, I want to point out a few things about Sarah that I think uh, you might know, but would be helpful to keep in mind at this point. One thing I'll say about Sarah is she's no longer young. Okay, Sarah is now 90 years of age at this time. And one of the ways Genesis 20 differs from Genesis 12, so you've got them side by side and you're looking at them. In Genesis 20, Abraham does not justify to Sarah why she needs to lie. In Genesis chapter 12, he justified it by saying this to Sarah. He said uh, that he knew that Sarah was a, a, a woman beautiful in appearance. 
Strangely, that's not mentioned here at all. He doesn't say that. Uh, perhaps, just perhaps, the 25 years in the tent have taken their toll on Sarah uh, in the wilderness. She's now 90. He doesn't give reasons for it. But per, the, the second point I want to uh, point out here that is even more important, I think, is we must remember, keep in mind, that the Lord had just promised to give Abraham and Sarah a child within a year. Back in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 10, and I think these two events are just separated by a few days, maybe a month or two. Just a few days before, maybe a month or two before, the angel of the Lord, or uh, the Lord said to Sarah, you're going to have a child within a year. And so this illicit marriage to King Abimelech within the first few months since that promise is a direct threat to the promises of God in the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see that? You see why this is a significant problem? And so how is this a threat? If this marriage between Sarah and King Abimelech is consummated, Sarah might be impregnated illegitimately, endangering all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? This is the introduction that sets the next stage of the story where God's going to do something. So in verses 3 through 7, the second point of the narrative as we go through is the next part of this narrative is a, a dream in the night where God interacts with Abimelech. So look in your Bible, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for, she, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Okay, so we have a dream. It's a dream dialogue. There's Abraham or Abimelech and God going back and forth, and I think there are three scenes to this. It starts out with a warning of God. If you're reading in verse 3 and you see the beginning of this dream, you realize this is one of the worst forms of dreams, right? This is a nightmare. A nightmare. And God makes it clear at the very beginning. You, you imagine this? Going to bed for the night, close your eyes, you have a nightmare. And somehow, someway, you know that God is, going to, that God is the one who's going to address you in this dream. And the very first words that he says... You are a dead man. That would be more than a little frightening. Behold, you are a dead man. Then he explains to Abimelech why that is the case. Because you have taken as a wife a woman who is married to another man. I think this uh, indicates here that adultery or the defrauding of one's spouse in marriage has always been an abomination to God. This is well before the law of Moses, right? In the law of Moses, it'll be clear if 
if there was adultery that, that crossed over into the marriage of one of the, the marriage partners, that would bring about the death penalty. But even before the law of Moses, in this story, God makes it very clear in a night dream to Abimelech, you cannot get married to a woman who's already married to a man. You are a dead man, he says. That's the warning of God. Uh, that leads to Abimelech's plea. And his plea is pretty straightforward. It's, it's threefold. He says, first, he says I, that he hadn't approached her. He had yet to consummate the marriage. That's his first line of defense. Okay, so the dream is like a courtroom defense with an angry God. Second, he explains that Abraham and Sarah had both lied to him. And it's emphasized in the text in the way he could have just said they both lied to me. He says, Abraham himself said, she's my sister. And by the way, the woman said, he's my brother. So the point of Imelech's making is, how in the world was I supposed to know this? And then his third line of defense is, I've done this in the integrity and innocence of my own hand and heart. And heart. He's basically suggesting there I'm innocent in the way I've thought about this, and I'm innocent in my actions. That leads God to give a final solution. In verses 6 and 7, God acknowledges. He, he acknowledges. He knows that Abimelech has done this in integrity. And he knows that Abimelech has not touched Sarah. But he explains the reason that's the case is because I, as the providential God, am the one who prevented you from doing this. I like how one commentator put it uh, this week. Victor Hamilton said, he said, only the restraining providence of God rather than any moral vigor on Abimelech's part deterred Abimelech from laying with Sarah. You see, God will not allow this threat to the Abrahamic covenant to materialize. And so somehow, some way, he kept Sarah and Abimelech apart. Now God concludes in this point with an ultimatum for Abimelech. You will either return Sarah or you'll pay the price. And the reason this is the case is because the person that you're interacting with is a prophet of mine and he needs to pray for you so that you'll be healed. Again, just stopping at this point in the story, I'm kind of reading and studying the story this week, and I've never preached on uh, Abimelech and Abraham in this story, and I come to this part of the story, and I'm like, what? As I'm reading through this story to this point, it sure seems like Abimelech is the one who's more righteous. Abimelech is the one who fears God. That's the case we know, because I mean, if you have a dream like that, who wouldn't revere God at that point? And what do we know about Abraham in this text? He's a liar. And so doesn't it seem ironic here, right? So the one who is ready to do the right thing has to go to the liar and ask him to pray for him. But this is to make Abraham's name great, as God has promised in Genesis chapter 12. Well, after the dream and the night, the next stage is a confrontation. A confrontation, verses 8 through 13. And this is now Abimelech and Abraham. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his saints and told them all these things. Uh, I'm sorry, all his servants and told him all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. 
And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that made you do this thing? And finally we get Abraham's response here. Verse 14. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is a kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So Abimelech awakes from the dream. He now knows what's going on. He starts by telling his servants about Abraham. I think he does that so that they'll know the danger of crossing Abraham. He's the prophet of God. He then goes directly to Abraham and confronts him and basically asks him why. And Abraham responds in some interesting ways. First, Abraham responds that he is afraid that the Philistines would kill him because they were not guided by a fear of God. One of the interesting things for me this week was to study kind of ancient cultures and their their views of morality. And one of the things you find in some of the ancient cultures outside of like Christianity or Judaism or uh, religions related to God, in ancient cultures there was still uh, normally a taboo against marrying a woman who was already married to someone else. It's like even down in Egypt, you can read of that in some of their documents. Even among the Philistines, you can, you can hear that. There, there was, that. That is, other cultures thought this was wrong. Now, what's interesting of those cultures is they didn't necessarily always think it was wrong to murder the husband so that the woman becomes single. Okay, so you see what the, the point is. Okay, like, so adultery with a married uh, woman is wrong, but if you kill the husband, then she's single and free. And so Abraham devises a plot to help with this. And Abraham's response gets even more lame as he continues by explaining that he's telling a half-truth that She is his half-sister. But that's when I think we find even more important information in verse 13. When he explains in verse 13, um, and this is an important note, that this is a practice, this is something they've been doing since they left uh, Abraham's father. So I suggest this is something he's been asking Sarah to do from the very beginning. This means that this lie that they're committing is something that has become an habitual practice for them throughout all these years. Okay? So I think he does it more than twice. I think we have record of two times this happening. But I think from the very beginning, you look at verse 13, from the very beginning when they left the father, this is something Abraham asked her to do, to continually be lying about her identity. That leaves us with one final part of the story, verses 14 through 18, the resolution. Okay, so verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to them, to him. 
And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs, all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This resolution comes quickly and involves three characters, comes through three characters. If you're taking notes, the first character is Abimelech. First, Abimelech, what does he do? He reacts to Abraham's honest confession by lavishing gifts upon him and Sarah. This is kind of like what Pharaoh did in Egypt. He gave him sheep and oxen and servants. He returned Sarah to him. He even offers to Abraham, this is something the Pharaoh didn't do. Remember, the Pharaoh just sent him away. Get out of here. This, this king, I think he wants to be connected to Abraham. He understands he's a prophet of the true God. He offers him whatever land he wants within the precincts of Gerar. He also addresses Sarah by explaining that the gifts here indicate her innocence. I think he's vindicating her. He's concerned for her honor in this, and he wants everyone to know she's been honorable in this. Now, I think there's a bit of sarcasm in verse 16. Did you see that in verse 16? Look at verse 16 again. I love the scriptures and how it does it. It says, to Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother. I don't think this is a third figure that appears in the scene. You got Abraham, Sarah, and you got Sarah's brother. Like, this is just kind of a subtle way <laughs> for him to either, you know, I, I don't know what he's doing exactly, but he calls him uh, Abraham her brother, which is half true. Half true. I've given your brother a thousand pieces. He, he's, let, he's given all kinds of things to her, or to her brother, Abraham. Yet, yet I think Abimelech is working to resolve the issue. His actions lead the second character to do something. Abraham does something And the text doesn't make much out of it. You look at verse 17, and there's only one verb there. Abraham prayed to God. So Abimelech does all this stuff, gives all these gifts. Abraham's part is very small. He prays to God. That is, he intercedes on behalf of Abimelech and his people. And that leads to or compels our third character to do something about this. And our third character is God, the Lord. If you look at the middle of verse 17, end of verse 18, we see what God does. Middle verse 17, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves that they bore children for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Here God heals all those who are afflicted because of this situation. It's very interesting to me that the threat that Abimelech, his wife, and uh, the slaves or the servants here was experiencing the whole time the threat was barrenness. One commentator captured this well in the irony of the situation. He says, the irony of the situation is that Abraham prays for God to open the wombs of the household of Abimelech when the womb of Sarah, his own wife, is closed. Walk through this story, I couldn't help but wonder as I'm thinking through this. You know, Abraham and Sarah are a couple who are struggling with infertility and barrenness. Why couldn't Abraham's prayers help his own wife through the situation? Here he prays in all of 
the people of Gerar are healed. Why not Sarah? And I can't help but think that the answer might be because God wants Abraham and Sarah to know that he is the giver of life. He is the one who will fulfill the promises supernaturally uh, for them as his people. So we close here. Abraham does not fear God, so he puts the promise in jeopardy. A foreign king might produce an illegitimate child with Sarah, yet God overcomes this in such a way to protect Abraham and Sarah and to make Abram's name great in the land of the Philistines. We started the sermon by asking a question, why did Abraham lie? I think Abraham's main problem is that he keeps looking around at the circumstances and the threats and the situations he faces instead of looking upward. That is, he lies because he's afraid. And he's afraid because he does not trust God. He does not fear God. As we close today, I want you to consider the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. I've been meditating upon these verses for two or three weeks. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Everlasting rock. I love how those verses start. You will keep him in perfect peace. That's no promise that you're going to have health and wellness in our world today. That's no promise that the affliction that you bear and that you suffer will go away soon. It is a promise that no matter what you experience, no matter what you are partaking in, if you will keep your mind stayed on the Lord, he will give you perfect peace. I think our reoccurring sins, whatever they are, come because we love self and we don't look upward. We return to our old sins time and time and time again because we do not fear God. We do not revere him. We look at Abraham and his sins. He sins twice, blows it twice. My, how much we can relate to that. But take heart, brothers and sisters. In this text, God works to protect a line of of one who will come 2,000 years later, one who will face similar challenges and pressures, yet will never lie. Jesus stood in human flesh, and he stood firm because he always looked upward. Always. Because he was always aware of his Father, and the will of his Father. Jesus never lied in any circumstance because his mind was in perfect peace. 
because he trusted his Lord. And truly, indeed, it was through the blessing, the, the, the obedience of that man, Jesus Christ, that all the families of the earth are blessed.